Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Navigating separation when you are a parent can be particularly stressful. Why? The answer to this question is both simple and complex. At the most basic level, it's because separation brings change. It also brings with it a wide variety of very human, but very often volatile emotions, feelings of loss, anger, anxiety, disappointment, mistrust, concern about the future. Parents want their children to have stable, stress-free lives. And when the changes which follow a separation come, parents' natural worry about the impact of these changes on their children. On the most basic level, the stress for a separated parent comes from their natural desire, perhaps their instinct, to protect their child from upheaval, from stress, from change which a parent may see as an unwanted change. On a more complex level, parents sometimes bring the joys and responsibilities of parenting into their own personal reckoning with the separation. What do I mean here? For example, a parent who is crushed by the other parent's decision to end the relationship may view parenting as a weapon against the other. They may use parenting either consciously or unwittingly as a bargaining chip in negotiations or even in court, as in, you left me and broke my heart so I will make sure the children see you as little as humanly possible. Or, my heart is broken and you have made me feel terrible about myself because of the separation, but I'm going to prove to the world that I'm a good dad who will fight for his kids. So parenting becomes a weapon. Allegations and accusations begin to fly. 
parents start having very different, very different recollections of events during their relationship. Who did what, when, who took the kids to parent-teacher meetings, dentist appointments, and so on. Other family members, friends, neighbors are scouted and recruited as allies in the battle. The atmosphere becomes toxic. The battleground fills with smoke, and guess what? The kids are in the middle of it. More than that, in the context of a separation, parents sometimes double down on the issue of parenting to repair perhaps badly frayed self-esteems. This happens particularly often when a parent is blindsided by separation. In such situations, the reflexive response might be to cling very tightly to what is dear, what is important, what gives one some refuge from the wave of change sweeping overhead. That is the kids. Sometimes a parent cannot separate their own needs from those of the children. This is quite common, in fact, but varies in degree. One way of explaining this further is to say that a parent might look at the children and to the children to meet their own emotional, psychological, perhaps even moral needs. Here is an example. In a separation involving infidelity, a parent shares this fact with the children because he or she feels their own sense of moral outrage should be shared by the kids. And I sometimes hear from such parents that the children have the right to know. This approach is potentially very harmful to children. I understand, I don't agree with, but I understand that the initial motivation might be to paint the other parent as the bad guy or gal, with the hope of creating a stronger bond between the aggrieved parent and the children, as in, mommy left us to live with another man, or daddy would never do that, now it's just you and me. But this short-term satisfaction for the aggrieved parent will come at the cost of potentially very profound and long-term consequences for the children, emotional, psychological. They may carry the ripple effects of this information well into their adulthood and may be shaped by it and not in a positive way. When a human being experiences a wrong, it's natural to want immediate satisfaction, quick relief. The reaction might be a stab back, but parenting is a long game because a child's growth and development is a long game. We could get into a debate about nature or nurture truly a fascinating, very broad topic for another time. But for now, I want to plant a tall flagpole on the following proposition. That children can be profoundly affected 
by what they see, what they hear, what they perceive. They will process that information based on their brain's capacity to do it, given their stage of development and their unique traits. So parents, what you do in the context of a separation, what you say, how you behave, how you interact with the other parent can and will very likely have a very profound and lasting impact on your children well into their adulthood. We all know parents do not have a parenting on and off button. When a separation happens, a parent cannot simply turn off the parenting role to focus on managing the grief and anxiety that often comes with separation, at least initially. A separated parent must go on, being both a caregiver and a human grappling with change, both at the parenting level and the personal level. This is where some of the challenges come from. So that's it for the long introduction. I spoke for as long as I did before tackling some actual questions because I wanted to identify, name some of what you may be feeling, some of the challenges you may be facing. Separation can be very difficult. You will feel overwhelmed. It's important to acknowledge that. I, as a family lawyer and mediator, must acknowledge that to be effective in my job. It might help you to admit that to yourself as well. You are balancing a lot. Your plate may be, in fact, overflowing. And many people feel this is not the time to show weakness. I have my own views about this, perhaps for another episode. My suggestion is, as always, seek out help, professional help if necessary. Look after yourself. Stop once in a while. Look around. Consider both the pace of your race and the progress you're making. Is your tank running empty? Are you making wise decisions? Are they based on your feelings about the other parent? or what is actually best for the kids. On to the questions. I want to stress, as I often do in these podcast episodes, that you should not consider what I say here as legal advice. I do not know you, you do not know me, and we have no solicitor-client relationship. You may very well have your own lawyer and are simply tuning in for some information, perhaps a different point of view. If you do have a lawyer, you should turn to him or her for legal advice specific to the circumstances of your specific case, because really, no two cases are alike. I am hoping that what I say here serves as some food for thought, and of course, I note that I'm answering these questions from my perspective as a professional involved in this area of the law for the past 26 years. 
but there are other perspectives. I acknowledge that. One of the most common questions I am asked about children and separation is, when will a judge speak to my child? And that is sometimes followed up with, because my child has told me where he or she wants to live, and the judge should know that. First and foremost, I sincerely hope that a family court judge will not have to be involved in your case. And I say this not because there is anything inherently bad about family court. Not at all. I say this because a stranger to your family making decisions about your future and that of your children should be the absolute last resort. You should avoid this at all costs if you can help it. You and the other parent should be making every effort to try and resolve your differences around parenting through negotiation, through family mediation, through dialogue, to minimize the chances that you will have to take the drastic step of having the family court involved, of putting a judge in a position of imposing arrangements, sometimes long-term ones, on you, the other parent and the children. But let me answer the question on the basis that the family court is already involved. Some members of the public have this idea that family court judges routinely interview children, and this may have to do with the media's presentation of this issue, the way shows involving the law sometimes portray judges talking to children. The reality is that in Ontario, in Canada in fact, judges rarely speak directly to children in the context of a family law case. But there are situations when they do, which are very unique. What is far more common is a judge hearing from children indirectly, and that might happen through the involvement of the office of the children's lawyer, for example, or an assessor appointed under the Children's Law Reform Act in Ontario, or through a voice of the child report. These are possible for children over the age of seven. They involve a clinician or a lawyer trained in this area, reporting on a child's statements about an issue in the case, for example, parenting time or decision-making responsibility. Remember, these are the new terms which have replaced access and custody. A child in a family law case may also have their own lawyer, one appointed for them by the Office of the Children's Lawyer or one who acts for them privately. So there are a number of ways information about a child's wishes might make its way to the court and to a judge hearing a family court case. And what I've mentioned here is not an exhaustive list. There are other examples. In Ontario, we have very, very clear law based on legislation, which says that children's views and preferences are to be 
taken into account when decisions are made about them in family court. And here we're talking about non-financial decisions. So to explain this further, a child has no say in whether he or she is to receive child support. That is not the type of issue on which their views and preferences will be canvassed. Section 24.3e of the Children's Law Reform Act talks specifically about a child's views and preferences being one of the factors to be considered by a family court judge when he or she is making a decision related to the child's best interests. Here is the text from the legislation relevant to this issue. Section 24.2 reads, primary consideration. In determining the best interests of a child, the court shall consider all factors related to the circumstances of the child, and in doing so, shall give primary consideration to the child's physical, emotional, and psychological safety, security, and well-being. And then subsection 3 says factors. Factors related to the circumstances of a child include, and there is a list, and E says the child's views and preferences, giving due weight to the child's age and maturity, unless they cannot be ascertained. We family law lawyers, and in fact all professionals involved in the area of family law, say that children have a voice, not a choice. Technically speaking, parents make decisions about their child, either together or separately, depending on whether there is a court order dealing with this issue until the child reaches the age of majority, which is 18. This phrase, children have a voice but not a choice, needs to be clarified by me a little bit. The section I read says weight. What weight? This word refers to how impactful on the decision the statements from the child might be. When a family court judge considers the needs of a particular child, what is best for that child, at that moment and going forward, that judge balances a number of factors, including all those listed in Section 24 of the Children's Law Reform Act. How big a role the statements from the child will play in the final decision will depend on a number of issues. For example, whether those statements are really the child's or whether the child was coached or pressured. But at the most basic level, the impact of the statement will depend on the child's age and stage of development. Using a very simple but practical example, a three-year-old statement on where they want to live is very, very likely far less clear and maybe even less easy to decipher than a 13-year-old's answer to that question. 
provided there's no coaching involved. But the issue isn't just clarity of response. It's more than that. We also take into account the child's stage of development. The fact that children's brains develop over time as they grow. That at a most basic fundamental level, the brain of a four-year-old is not the same as the brain of a 15-year-old. No matter how smart or exceptional you may think your own child is. To complicate matters further, two 12-year-olds do not have the same brains. They may be developing at different paces. One may be more socially advanced, but less able to handle emotion than the other. One may have a better ability to analyze a problem, consider alternative solutions to it, and understand consequences. I am not a psychologist, and I don't even play one on TV, but this is my take from a pop psychology perspective, and I try to read as much as I can on this topic because it's of particular interest to me. So we can say with confidence that the views of a nine-year-old will have more impact than the views of a four-year-old. It's no accident, for example, that the voice of the child reports are doable for children over the age of seven. The overall approach should be always not to involve children in decisions which should be left to adults. And this includes where they live and who makes decisions about them. Kids should be allowed to be kids. Every effort should be made to make their childhoods happy and stress-free as much as that is possible. Structured, predictable, stable, consistent. Children should not be put in the position of choosing, especially between their parents, who they often realize are at incredible odds. Children sense conflict between their parents very, very easily. They are far more attuned to their parents' moods and interactions with one another than many parents realize. Again, it's important to remember the big picture. So when a child is told by one parent to express a preference for that home, it's not a question of that child getting over the stress of having to say that two days later or a week later. Such statements may have a long-term impact on the child, on their continuing growth into adulthood. If such a statement by a child is required, and there are cases when it is, the situation needs to be handled with care by the right professionals who will obtain the information in a way which has as little negative impact on the child as possible. So that is my long answer to the question, when will a judge speak to my child? Let's move on to another topic, which happens to be related to what we have talked about so far. Often, I am asked questions around the idea that a child might need a therapist or a counselor or perhaps even a psychiatrist. 
there is still, sadly, a lot of stigma attached to this idea. And many parents are resistant to therapy for kids, including perhaps because they do not understand the reason for it or what it's meant to accomplish. Let's first establish that not all children whose parents separate need therapy. That is definitely not the case. There are many situations in which they do, and sadly, this sometimes happens because their parents, the very people who apparently want what's best for them and who say they love them more than anything, behave in a way which causes stress or anxiety for their child. The situation might become toxic and the upheaval the child is experiencing starts spilling into various areas of the child's life, their schooling, their play, their relationships with their peers. Sometimes I encounter parents who are incredulous that their fights with the other parent are actually causing anxiety to their child may have something to do with bedwetting, with destructive behavior or other emerging behaviors. I'm told we fight in private, the children do not hear us. We're in the room upstairs and the door is shut or we fight over the phone. But based on my professional experience and having read countless assessment reports, both private and from the office of the children's lawyer, that experience tells me that children are much better attuned to their parents than even the parents themselves might appreciate. Sometimes I read in court material that the atmosphere of the matrimonial home where two parents continue to live together after the separation is unbearable. And for this reason, one of the parents is asking the court to make this or that happen. If the situation is unbearable for the adults, we can just imagine how difficult it is for the children. And yes, they process these situations at their unique stage of development. But preteens are deeply affected by their parents' conflict as well. Children of all ages read body language. They sense tension between their parents very easily. They are deeply affected when one parent denigrates the other, and they either internalize their feelings and anxieties or they externalize them. Just the other day, I turned into an excellent webinar put on by the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. It featured Dr. Robert A. Simon, an American psychologist, who gave a fantastic talk about child development. And he had a great way of explaining what a therapist's job is, and I thought I would talk about it here. Because I think his use of the image of a train in one of his presentation slides was really great. Sometimes a high conflict, toxic separation, might cause a child's various stages, elements of development to veer off track. This process does not progress 
the way it might have if the stress of the separation did not happen. The problem can go as far as resulting in what psychologists call development arrest. And this in turn can be linked to further problems like, for example, the development of personality disorders affecting the individual well into adulthood. Here, Dr. Simon aptly described the therapist's job as nudging those stages of development back on track. So the train can carry on and the child can develop, can continue to develop to grow into a healthy, well-adjusted adult. I think this is a terrific way of explaining this. There are many cases in which this nudging back is required. If you are a parent going through a separation, do not dismiss the idea of therapy or counseling out of hand simply because of the stigma which continues sadly to follow this concept. Sometimes I hear parents say, there is nothing wrong with my child, emphasis on my as if a child benefiting from some supportive therapy is a criticism of that parent's parenting automatically. All decisions about children must be child-focused. They're not to be about what is good or bad for either parent. They're to be about what is best for the child. So if therapy or counseling is being proposed, do not dismiss it out of hand, out of pride. Inform yourself. Speak to professionals. Make the right decision for your child and not for yourself. Common question number three. Can I show my child the court materials from my case with the other parent? My answer, no, 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 no. And did I say no? Because the answer is no. I don't buy into these, my child has the right to know arguments. Your child has the right to have a happy, stress-free childhood, memorable for all the right reasons, a childhood which takes them through all the expected stages of development, which exposes them to a variety of positive and educational experiences, in which they are permitted to love both parents, free of loyalty binds. I may sound a little harsh here, but by now you likely know I'm a pretty straight shooter. Just because your child has mastered the latest video game in two days, and beaten all his peers and you at it, does not, does not automatically mean that he can withstand the stress and overwhelm of being thrust into an arena in which his parents are battling over him. Do not do it. There is absolutely no reason to do it. Nothing good will come of it. And the damage may be long-standing, likely will be, even if you do not see it right away. I believe that when you insist on showing your children court materials or any documents relating to the separation, you are doing what I identified earlier on. 
you are adultifying your child inappropriately and looking to them to meet your emotional, psychological, perhaps moral needs. Don't do it there. I said it again. You may be angry. You may be sad and mad. I get it. But this is not the way to cope, to deal with what you're feeling. If you are feeling distressed and obsessed by what is happening, just imagine how your child will feel. I'm going to conclude here. By way of final comment, I say this. There is no script for how to separate the right way. No step-by-step prescription, no recipe. Why? Because no two humans are alike. No two separations are the same. But there are some themes developed by people working in this field, by professionals, including mental health care professionals. Here is the important theme I have tried to emphasize in this episode, and I am hopeful that it came through. Children should be actively shielded from the impact of separation to the greatest extent possible. There are a number of ways to ensure this happens, and this includes leaving adult decisions to adults and separating as much as possible the adult business of implementing the change which comes with separation from the children's daily lives. These two themes are interconnected, but the players are different. The issues arising out of a separation should be dealt with by adults without the children's participation in the process. They are not to be players in this part. Their job, so to speak, is to navigate the change in their own way, hopefully supported by both parents, not used by them as pawns. I hope something you heard today will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.